Hi, welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science and uh, your host for today's podcast. Today, we are very uh, lucky to be speaking with Lonnie Shea. He's the William and Valerie Hall Chair and the Stephen A. Goldstein Collegiate Professor of Biomedical Engineering at the University of Michigan. And we're going to talk with him today really about the world of islet transplantation. And uh, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I guess let's just start off at the very top. And, you know, what is it that got you interested in type 1 diabetes research from the beginning? I got interested from several angles. So some friends that I've had grown up with that I sort of had seen them manage their disease through, you know, while we're playing baseball together, as an example, and the challenges that they faced. Um, I'd say it also came from my research area, um, technologically trying to work with the idea of, you know, regenerative medicine and tissue engineering, and finding some, you know, very committed clinicians who were trying to help their patients and advance the science. And I think we had some technologies that had gotten their interest and they were willing to reach out and sort of share with me, you know, what the challenges and opportunities were and really provided that avenue to um, begin approaching this really challenging problem from some new perspectives. Yeah, it is a challenging uh, you know, problem and it is, um, I'm very happy to see so many disciplines approaching it including engineering, biomedical engineering. Uh, what are your thoughts about the work being done in your field, sort of in your wheelhouse right now of the field um, that addressed uh, type one? Well, my own perspective is that it's a, an incredibly exciting time. And it's why I think it's exciting is I think there's been, you know, proof of concept that islet transplantation can really provide significant benefit to patients. And so with that, basically shown then the idea is how can you do this well and do it effectively now the challenge i think with the way that it's been done most frequently is this idea of delivering islets into the liver and then obviously providing the immunosuppressive drugs to prevent rejection and while that has some very promising aspects to it it also is challenging because it does have some sort of long-term consequences. It's sort of hard to imagine taking a, you know, a, a child that might be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and giving them, you know, an islet transplant or a stem cell transplant and then having them on immunosuppressive drugs for, for decades. Yeah. And so that's, a, you know, it's hard to sort of picture that. I'm not saying it's not, po- it's going to be possible, but, um, you would think that there are other ways. And I think that's where the, the field and some groups of it have been working towards extrahepatic transplants. And how can we create a site outside of the liver that we could deliver islets that they could actually, um, you know, create an environment that they could essentially sense blood glucose and distribute insulin um, for a long times. And I think most of the work done in this space has been with the encapsulating islets within hydrogels or other sorts of materials with the idea of actually keeping the immune system out. And here the idea of you keeping the immune system out can obviously prevent the rejection either from the autoimmune disease or from the 
allogeneic immune response that would be associated with donor islets or donor cells. But also the idea is by keeping the immune system out, you're also keeping blood vessels out as well too. And yeah. these blood vessels being kept out then requires that, that you know, nutrients be transported by diffusion, often over longer distances than they would normally be um, have to travel. And that can actually provide some slow response, but also can create a more challenging environment for the cells themselves. And I think that's, you know, essentially the challenge of the encapsulation process is trying to balance all these things. It's really fantastic that you can sort of prevent rejection responses, but the idea of, you know, limiting nutrient access as well as the distribution of insulin can be challenging. The, my collaborator, Bill Lowe, was always fantastic pointing out that the islets are about 1% of the mass of the pancreas, but have about 10% of the blood, blood supply. And so yeah. that would indicate that they are really high metabolically active and that ready access to, to nutrients also allows them to sort of distribute their insulin relatively quickly as well too. And you're sort of removing that by having an encapsulating approach. And right. this is where, you know, um, Bill Lowe, in conjunction with Dixon Kaufman, um, while all of us were at Northwestern together, began working on this idea of like, uh, transplanting islets on these porous scaffolds. And here the idea was having the pores of the scaffold be able to provide a support for the islets. The idea that when you isolate islets from a pancreas, you're using all these digestive enzymes that can sort of degrade the extracellular matrix. Mm -hmm. and can also compromise function. And so here we had a, a solid support that we could put the cells onto that could be you know, modified with these extracellular matrix proteins. And you could thus, thus represent them with these factors. Uh, also having the three-dimensional architecture could actually provide a support to help maintain the integrity of the islets um, after you've done all the processing of the islets for transplant. And then the final component is that being very porous, when you implant these materials, you're going to get host cell infiltration in through the graft. Yeah. And so this host cell infiltration is going to allow for blood vessels to come in to sort of reconnect with the host vasculature. But then obviously you have the additional challenge now that the immune system does not uh, have any restricted access, can actually directly access the islets. And now you have to consider both the autoimmune response as well as the allogeneic response that's going to be present. Yeah, and this, I mean, you're sort of already diving right into this uh, really great review paper that you, um, that recently came out uh, in endocrinology. It was the integration of islet beta cell uh, transplants with host tissue using biomaterial platforms. And I thought it was just a great, um, it was a very thorough overview of what is, um, what's happening, what's happening and what has happened historically in the field and how, how things are coming together. And I didn't know if you wanted to sort of continue the story and talk more about this paper. Well, I, th I think what we've tried to do in the paper is, you know, maybe we're coming at it from an engineer's perspective um, in terms of a, a transplantation platform, but also recognizing the really important contributions that come from all sides. You know, the, the surgical components that are going to be necessary, what site do you use? I think the stem cell biologists that are essentially really key towards um, having the cell source that's going to be sustainable for, for long times. 
I think the immunology is obviously a very key component as well because there's an autoimmune response, the allogeneic response, and then things such as you know promoting vascularization and how do we do that. And I think the engineers' mindset that we had is we have at least you know, I, I mentioned several of the disciplines that are certainly at play here, and I think we're trying to figure out how as a platform can we begin to integrate all the necessary components and. You know, certainly we don't have everything in there, but it really is sort of high, highlighting the complexity of the problem. There's not just one thing that you need to do. There's sort of a series of things that need to be addressed in order for a, a, a transplant that can um, have, you know, mature beta cells that can engraft, can function long-term, and all those components are going to be necessary for that. Yeah, I mean, recently we spoke with Ekaterine um, uh, Bershevili in Geneva, and she was talking about shielding islets with human amniotic epithelial cells and how that enhances islet engraftment. And it just gets me thinking about what are some autoimmune, um, you know, protected spaces in the body. One of them is being, right, is the placental interface or the developing fetus. and so, I mean, are engineers thinking this way? Are they thinking um, in the field? Are they, do you feel that they're thinking about ways to create this sort of um, protected immune space? And, and can you draw any examples or, you know, draw any, anything from these pre-existing spaces? What is it, the, the cornea, the cornea? Yep. And, so, and the, and the um, you know, the, the placentas. Yeah. I mean, what are, what is the engineering thought about that? Well, I, I think the idea of creating an immunoprivileged site is okay. one of the big goals. And I, you know, really what you're saying with these other examples is that there's a precedence for it, that it is possible. Um, the, you know, challenge might be though, those, those sites develop over a period of time and how can you, as a tissue engineer, how could you essentially get one to begin functioning like that right off the start? And I think that sort of is where the, the challenge is. You know, in terms of, of the work, there definitely has been a, a number of factors that are trying to build off of what's known uh, about these immunoprivileged sites. So uh, I have a collaborator, Haval Sherwan, who's at the University of Missouri, and as well as through Andres Garcia at, um, at Georgia Tech, where we essentially modified the materials with fast ligand. And this modification with fast ligand was useful in sort of creating a locally immunoprivileged site where we could actually transplant islets, um, effector T cells that were present, uh, were not able to destroy the graft, and actually there was actually an induction of regulatory T cells as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a you know, from a translational perspective, that sort of is somewhat appealing because it's a factor that can be modified and you can validate it. If you're working with other cell sources, um, there's maybe a, a regulatory burden that's unknown to me um, and, and can be challenging to sort of mix one cell source, you know, such as, you know, the placental cells with islets or stem cells and how to get that through regulatory approval um, at the same time, the idea of regulatory approval for factors like fast ligand in conjunction with islets is also going to be a burden as well, too. 
Right. Well, she's in Europe, so they have different constraints, regulatory constraints, but um, they do have a, a large amount of funding around this project. And it looks like it's, um, it really enhances the island engraftment and revascularization. But what if you were like to create a sort of a gestational model? Because it, if you have, if you think about it, right, the, the, um, the embryo starts off with barely anything. I mean, there's a, there's some kind of, um, there's some kind of shield, immune shield up sort of very in early days. And then it just, it continues to develop. But, you know, if you did an eyelid implant in this fashion, what if you sort of still had the person doing, and this is a total thought experiment, but if you still had the person doing shots or insulin, giving insulin as, as they got used to, um, or, or were able to incorporate the eyelid into the body, um, and, and have sort of like, you know, it develop in a gestational model. Is that even possible? Oh, no, absolutely. Because just as you had mentioned with the idea of doing insulin injections, you know, post-transplantation that sort of, um, you know, I, I think of that as sort of reducing the burden on the islets. They don't have to begin uh, restoring normal blood glucose levels immediately. Um, and they would have the time to sort of acclimate to the new setting. Um, at the same time, you can sort of have a transient immunosuppression that would allow, that would protect the graft, allow it to essentially develop and mature. And then ultimately you can sort of reduce the immunosuppression over time. And presumably then these other cells or factors could essentially have um, done what you hope they would do towards protecting a local environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so what do you, what are your, you know, what's going on in your laboratory that's sort of working uh, in the space right now? Well, we have a, a, and specifically sticking to the immune component, I'll say that we are continuing to work with fast ligand and the idea being to extend what we had done with islets to now do it with beta cells um, that are derived from stem cells. And so we are uh, working um, through collaboration with uh, Jeff Millman and uh, at Washington University to try to essentially culture the beta cells, put them onto our scaffolds, and then have a presentation of fast ligand that can actually protect the cells. And we've you know, de certainly demonstrated early on this uh, component of being able to sort of attenuate the adaptive immune cell responses, but also looking at the potential impact of fast ligand on the innate responses as well too that can be particularly harsh to the cells in that post-transplant period. Right. And so I think that is a, sort of an exciting area where I think we're, I think a, one of the aspects I think is we're trying to incorporate is sort of learning from some of the, success, from some of the successes of tissue engineering. Um, an example of this is in sort of cartilage and biology and that there, if you sort of just inject chondrocytes into a defect, um, the tissue, you know, can be better, but I don't think that that's perceived to create tremendous benefit. But if those chondrocytes are cultured into more of a cartilaginous tissue and then transplanted, um, the efficacy of those cartilage transplants seems to be higher and has provided some you know, more substantial therapeutic benefits. So I think yeah. we're looking, rather than trying to transplant cells alone, we're actually allowing the cells, um, these stem cells to grow on the scaffold 
and allowing them to sort of create their own niche within the pores of the scaffold and with the idea that the niche will allow the cells to mature, but the cells can also secrete extracellular matrix factors and be able to secrete the matrix and condition that matrix in a way such that it is uh, a more suitable environment long-term. And thus the idea, rather than trying to think of transplanting cells, we can actually you know, imagine thinking of just picking up the disc and transplanting the disc without really having any significant manipulation of the cells at all. And I think that idea of is one that I think we're trying to advance and see how we can do relative to the idea of more, more direct cell transplants. Yeah, it's all, it's one-stop shopping versus, you know, sort of a piecemeal approach, right? Because you're bringing them in with their home, with their environment. Um, and, oh, sorry. And I was just saying, that's the, I think the one thing about the, the material platform and a backbone is that the, you know, I sort of generally perceive that the history of regenerative medicine has many examples of people um, delivering cells into some sort of injury or trauma. And cell survival is often quite limited in those situations. And so the material sort of becomes a, a platform, sort of a new tool that you can use to sort of control that environment. So you're not just saying, let me put the cells in and you know, at that point I have to wash my hands and say I don't have any control over what's happening. You can actually say, well, I can modify this material and I can have a period of time where this material uh, might present factors or deliver factors in a way to actually provide the opportunity to sort of have a continued impact on it more than just doing something systemically. Yeah. And where would, where do you uh, find the optimal um, implant site for the scaffold and its uh, cargo is uh, turning out to be? Well, the site that we've really worked on mostly is looking at peritoneal fat for which the omentum is the you know, largest uh, area uh, for us that's you know, translatable. We we have done some work in the subcutaneous space. Um, that's always been more challenging for us to get engraftment and function, but the, the, the peritoneal fat has been a site that has worked for us, and there have been some successes from the, uh, some work down at the University of Miami has really shown the ability to actually deliver islets into the momentum and be able to get function in humans uh, for a period of time. So. I think there's some evidence that the Omentum could be a reasonable site to transplant, but at the same time, I don't think it's the only opportunity out there either. Yeah. And what about the idea of uh, softness of an implant being a criteria for avoiding the FBI, the foreign body response? I mean, that, that certainly is one factor that plays into it. And I think it's really... You know, when you look at the material and the platform, I think you have to consider all aspects to it. And um, there has been a, a range of materials that have been used, some from natural materials, some from synthetic materials. Um, some materials are permanent and stick around. Other materials are going to degrade and go away with time. And all of these have a different component or contribution to the foreign body response. And so for us, the foreign body response hasn't been the limiting factor that we've been worried been worried about. Uh, we certainly don't want to ignore it or take it for granted, but it's been much more in terms of the, uh, the long-term function and the you know, adaptive responses that have been more challenging. 
So it feel it sounds like maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like maybe with the in the presence of the fast ligand, maybe you don't need so much the softness. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously there's no there's obviously a very strong connection between the innate response and the adaptive response. And so I think for any platform, if your innate response is too strong, that certainly is going to lead yeah. to a stronger adaptive response. And so right. obviously you'd like to sort of minimize both and, and it obviously gets you into certain situations where you can actually, you know, we, we think of sometimes as trying to reprogram the immune system to sort of accept these new cells. And um, that is certainly, one of the strategies that are out there, but rather than actually accepting the cells, I mean, there is this idea of an operational tolerance that's much more about sort of the body ignoring that the cells are there. It's not that it can't react to it, but um, trying to give the opportunity to um, engraft and function, but ignoring it rather than truly being totally non-responsive. Yeah, like there's nothing going on here. Don't come over here. What, um, uh, in terms of sort of what's, what's next, you know, for your group, uh, what are, what areas are you moving into and do you, do you have postdocs and, um, grad students moving into areas that you want to sort of discuss or projects they're involved in? Yeah. I mean, so I'm happy to talk about it. I think one area that, uh, we're certainly continuing the idea of, you know, working with, uh, stem cell cultures on the materials and both the transplant as well as sort of the long-term sort of immune modulation for their engraftment. Uh, we're working with Jose Oberholzer, um, who's at Virginia, but has a, a connection to a company in Chicago on translating this to uh, transplants and non-human primates with islets. And so I think we're very much looking forward to um, that progress. Sort of the one area that's, I think, new and is incoming for us is reflected in a paper that we published um, over the summer that's really trying to identify the onset of autoimmune diseases at early stages so that you could potentially intervene at a time before all of the islets have been destroyed in the pancreas by the autoimmune response. And so it's there's certainly no shortage of ideas or opportunities for this really complex and it sort of takes you in, in many directions, but you know, clearly um, cell-based therapies are needed for the patients that are you know, present today as well as for the patients that are gonna be diagnosed for the next few years. But I'd also like to think that as we look down the road, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually you know, think of all the advances in immunotherapy that are coming and try to identify patients at the onset of the disease before right. the islets are destroyed and be able to sort of reset their immune system in a way that they wouldn't need a cell transplant. Right, and it, it, it turns out, I mean, it seems that well, what data are showing is that there's, there's a progression to the, to the onset, the full-blown onset of type one diabetes. It, you've got the biomarker presentation, maybe one and the second one, and there seems, it's almost as if people are coming in and out of remission um, and that could be shorter or longer, but if you can identify those who just have the one biomarker and what exactly is going on and cater something to address what's happening then, wouldn't that be a better place to, to cut, you know, cut the disease off at the pass? Yeah, I mean, I think, 
you know, you know, I think you're sort of referring to the idea of the blood tests that are present with antibodies, the, the, the three antibody tests that right. um, certainly I'm not the clinician, so I will not necessarily say this um, as precisely as someone in the know would, but uh, my understanding is that those antibodies basically confer risk. Like, right. you know, there's a certain likelihood that you will develop disease over right. a, the, the next couple of years. And so unfortunately that, that risk analysis is I, it's great because it identifies patients who are at risk, but it doesn't tell you what to do. And so that's the limiting factor. And I think the idea of actually having something that can um, be used to sort of identify the activity of your immune response and whether or not it's beginning to mount responses to specific antigens, that then becomes the actionable item that you yeah. could then try to use this sort of system in the at-risk patients. Yeah, that group should really um, would be an excellent data set to address to really just understand on a personalized medicine level, like what um, you know what is going on with them as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the idea, I think, in general, is just not that you're at risk, but you also can get more information about when you should do something as well. Right. Yeah, that's a point well taken. What? Um, in terms of you know, uh, in terms of scalability of this, you know the the platforms you're uh, developing and interested in, what is the what are your thoughts about scaling um, to the clinic? Um, from the materials perspective, the the scaffolds should be very straightforward for scaling, and clearly the the cells are sort of probably the most challenging aspect of it. Um, within the context of islets, there certainly is a shortage of sufficient numbers of islets to be able to really scale that. But I, it, it does seem with the work of several uh, large pharmaceutical companies as well as you know, startup pharmaceutical companies that um, they have been able to tackle some of the cell manufacturing challenges associated with you know, turning stem cells into beta cells. So I'm I don't know if the problems are solved yet, but it seems like there's been very substantial strides that have been made in that direction. So yeah. from that point, then it becomes, well, what, what do you need beyond a transplantation platform and the cells? And it might be the, you know, if it's a fast ligand or some other factor in terms of their, their manufacturing, you know, really none of those things really seem to be uh, factors that are not solvable in some way, yeah. but identifying what's the right combination first is going to be the big research project. And hopefully, because this involves technologies from different areas, you know, getting people to be able to work together to develop these synergistic technologies is going to be a key component. I think so too. And I think Hearn has put together something that's of interest. You know, they're trying to get people to really collaborate. Um, and there are others in the European system too. And I, I totally believe, and that's why one of the reasons we're doing this is to try to engage scientists from many different disciplines and have them listen to each other and communicate and um, hopefully expedite, you know, things. Um, and I think particularly in this post-pandemic world where in-person conferences uh, are not happening and then when will they happen and so forth, it, it's it's a it's an ideal time to reach out to those in um within the field and and create 
new types of collaborations. Um, what do you think, I would say, what do you think the challenges, um, well, we know there are some challenges for young scientists during this COVID situation. What do you think, what's your advice for young researchers approaching these challenges given these current COVID you know, constraints? I think I think you mentioned some of them, and I know it's it's imperfect, but taking advantage of the you know connection technologies that are you know I think a year ago we've been like oh we're going to schedule a one hour or two hour Zoom call to go over something would have almost been unheard of, but mm -hmm. obviously it's very much routine now, and so the the ability to sort of you know participate in a range of activities and be able to reach out. So I've been very fortunate to have been part of the JDRF Encapsulation Consortium. Um, oh, sorry, it's, it was formerly the Encapsulation Consortium. It's now the Beta Cell Replacement Consortium. And they would have a series of, of meetings and it was a, uh, a really thoughtful group that the JDRF had assembled to really try to tackle cell replacement therapy. Yeah. When was the last time you um, all met? It would have been a, um, just over a, uh, almost a year ago. And that, uh, that meeting was always fantastic because I think everyone involved brought different expertise and they had stem cell biologists and immunologists and transplant surgeons and, and, and everything. And it really was an opportunity to get to know and meet people from that format. But you know, in my most recent conversations, you know, there is potentially the, or I should say, I don't know what will happen per se, but I think there uh, is the potential that those meetings will continue, but they'll probably be more virtual. And mm -hmm. that may allow other people to attend, such as, you know, graduate students and postdocs or young faculty in other areas to be able to see some talks or participate in a meeting in that way. And that might open up opportunities that weren't previously available. Right, I think that's excellent um, because I really feel I'm I'm very dedicated to the idea that you know diverse um, perspective and different career um, you know perspectives give give for a more robust conversation. So yeah, that sounds great. I hope they schedule another one soon. I know they're just undergoing some restructuring, so maybe it'll be um, a little pushed off, but they'll probably, hopefully they'll do it. And hopefully it'll be areas with like Pern and uh, you know the European Consortium as well too, maybe be able to engage uh, broader teams as well. Yeah, I do think so, I hope so. Um, I guess, is there's anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or students, young, young early career faculty? Oh, I know that uh, the, sometimes you walk into this field and you're just getting started. I think if you look at the totality of things that needs to be done, it can sometimes be overwhelming and you need to think like, how can I possibly make a difference? I would say, you know, that's certainly how I may have felt when I began. And at the same time, you know, one person does not have to solve all of the problems. One person can contribute a component of the solution. And so I would say um, my suggestion would be to, you know, reach out and develop that, those connections with people who have uh, complementary expertise, whether it be in 
the immunology or the biology or the engineering that can really help take your idea and allow it to grow to something even bigger. That's great advice. I love how you said complementary expertise. That's excellent um, advice for any and all listeners. So thank you so much, Lonnie, for taking the time and talk to us. Um, and I would encourage, um, sorry about that uh, beeping, anyone who's um, you know, out there to take a look at your, your paper. It's a, it was just uh, published September 7th and the integration of islet uh, beta cell transplants with host tissue using biomaterial platforms is really an excellent in-depth read about the sort of the latest and greatest uh, in this area of the field. So thank you again. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for, for hosting such a, a podcast and for uh, allowing me to contribute. Thank you.